If you could choose only one scripture for the church in contemporary America, just one scripture, critical to our culture, what scripture would you identify or choose to share? You know, hearing this question recently caused me to just stop and think. It's a good question. Uh, I thought, how would you, thinking about our culture today, how, how could you identify just one? I don't know about you, but when, when I hear that question, there, there's literally a flood of scriptures that pour into my mind uh, relevant for our time. I thought about Ephesians chapter 2, and it's, it's, it's an essential scripture. You know why? Because it, it points to grace, the grace of the cross, as that means by which we're saved. By grace you're saved, not of yourselves, lest any man shall boast, Ephesians 2. Certainly that, that would be important to bring to our culture today if we had only one bullet to fire. Or what about Romans 9? This is, this is a hard one. This scripture is hard, but so foundational toward understanding how God from before creation has been at work in his mercy, choosing you and me as his own. Then, then of course, back up one chapter to Romans 8. How could we not choose Romans 8? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. If God's for us, who can be against us? We, we need to know that. So what, what I'm saying is there are so many scriptures to choose from. But if I had to choose one, one scripture absolutely relevant for the church in America today, I don't know that we could do any better than the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. I don't think we could do better. Now, here's why I say that. Much of the book of Revelation takes a lot of insight to understand. This is a book written in the apocalyptic genre. It's filled with symbols and symbolic numbers, and it's written in Hebraic style, more so than Roman prose. It takes some doing to understand, but not, not chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3, book of Revelation, are very straightforward. I think we know what they are. The first three chapters of the Revelation are a letter from God to his church. And, and while these letters were written at the end of the first century, I don't, I don't think there's been a time in the history of the world where they've been more relevant than they are today. Listen to this. Any church that's serious about living out the mission of Jesus Christ will actually with a degree of regularity, come back to these letters and study them in ways that seek to act upon them again and again. I want to make this observation. Uh, I believe that what makes the revelation so relevant is the fact that it centers our being in the mission of Jesus in such a way it reminds us that we're in a battle for souls, a battle. This is a battle in which a very real antagonist is at work none less than the fallen angel, Lucifer. Make no mistake about it. He wants my marriage. He wants my family. He, he wants the hearts and heads of my children and my grandchildren. And most of all, he wants my soul. And he's at work in this world, 365 days a year, day and night, which is what makes our topic today, I believe, so significant. In this episode of God-Sized Living, I want to conclude what has been a short study that we've engaged over the last five weeks. We've been talking about Antichrist. So in our walk through the book of Daniel, we've come to that moment in which this old servant of God, Daniel, realizes that he's close to the end. He's, he's about to die. 
He's seen God at work in so many substantive ways within an exilic context. But before he dies, God does something. God gives to Daniel an extraordinary glimpse into the future. God shows Daniel with a fair amount of detail what nations will rise and fall. He points Daniel to key players and rulers that will come and go. And in particular, he leads Daniel into Rome, inclusive of Palestine and Jerusalem, into which will enter a king whose kingdom will never fall, namely the promised and prophesied Jesus Christ. The intention in doing this is to say to Daniel, as much as to us who read his words so many years later, in the battle for souls, there is one who is king, and that is our Jesus. However, listen to this. While the war has been won, while God has overcome our great enemy, individual battles for the souls of men continue and will continue into the last day. I always think about this tension that we live in. The war is over. The war over sin and death, it has been won. Yet the battle in my life goes on every day. So it's, it's within this context of showing Daniel this war, of pointing to battles that are yet to take place, that God points to a figure that many of us grew up in the church knowing biblically as the Antichrist. The question that we've all had, I think I've had it since I was little, is the question who or what is it, or he or she, what is the Antichrist? So over the last several weeks, we've looked at several key scriptures toward understanding the who and the what of the Antichrist. My, my hope is that at this point, we're able to identify at least three key relevant truths about the Antichrist. Let me kind of walk through them. Number one, We've been talking about the fact that there's more than one of them. This, by the way, always seems to take people by surprise. It shouldn't, but it does. What the scripture tells us is that there are and have been, over the course of time, multiple antichrists at work. So where do we find them? Now, this is the second thing that we've learned. Number two, we've learned that there are two particular arenas in which we find antichrists, plural, at work. One, the political, two, the church. Uh, by the way, wh which is more dangerous? Isn't it the fact that one of the primary realms within which the Antichrists work are the church? That's scary to me, but it is true. And I believe that we see it in abundance in America today. When we see the church, not the secular world, but the church taking a sign for God's promise, namely the rainbow, and turning its meaning upside down, utilizing this sign to identify with and embrace sin as good, namely homosexuality and pride, that has Antichrist's fingerprints all over it. What makes it so scary is the fact that because it is the church or churches that are proclaiming this, people are deceived. So pay attention to what's happening in the church. The second arena is politics. Listen carefully to what's coming out of the mouths of politicians today. It isn't politics. It's theology and a deadly form of it at that. In the last two years, I've watched the president of this country, along with multiple state governors, literally misquote the scriptures in an effort to proclaim God's endorsement of abortion, homosexuality, the transgender movement. Now, most of the time, we simply treat this as politics. Politics. 
we say things like, oh, look at how our elected leaders are, are dealing with this issue or listen to this ideology. The Bible doesn't do that. It calls things that are of God theology, things that are of God theological. In other words, it situates what's going on in our world today within the context of this war on souls. It reminds us that what we're watching happening is demonic, not political. It lives in the spiritual realm, and we had better know that. And the third thing that we've really been taking in and learning is that the Bible reminds us that this war, this battle, has been going on for a long time. When John speaks to the topic of Antichrist, he tells us that the Antichrist had been active since the first century. That's a long time. I'm going to use this analogy. It may seem a little bit silly, but it's been helpful to me. Just two words. Tom Brady, former quarterback, New England Patriots, and then, of course, Tampa Bay. Lots of Super Bowl rings. So what made him so deadly? How, how did Tom Brady become Tom Brady? You know the answer, right? His experience. Tom, Tom Brady did not become who he is overnight. He became Tom Brady by practicing and playing and practicing and playing and practicing and playing. And after years of doing this, he could walk on the field and from the huddle pretty well know what the defense on the other side of the ball was going to do. He couldn't fool him. As a result, when Tom Brady walked on the field, all bets were off. Do not bet against him. Too many games I watched, he would flat out carve defenses up like Chevy Chase carving that Thanksgiving bird in the Christmas Vacation movie, the one where the turkey explodes. That's what he would do to defenses, explode them. Now think about this. The adversary that we face, our Tom Brady, the ones that our kids face every day, has been on this earth for thousands of years. He's been a student of human beings. He is the sole hunter whose aim is to separate us from the word and to separate us from salvation. Think about this. Do you really believe that you can wake up on any morning and just blitz into the day and go about your business and maybe, maybe offer up a prayer at lunchtime and do battle with this adversary? Do you, do you really believe this? Here's what I know. You don't stand a chance. To believe that you can overcome our adversary through your strength is the equivalent of me telling you that I'm going to go out and I'll play an outsmart Tom Brady on a football field. It isn't happening. No. The only chance that I have is to do battle in the strength of Jesus Christ. Is to know that he fights for me. Is to become so hidden in the word of God that when my adversary sees me, he sees Jesus and he knows I can't take him. Because the word will overcome our adversary every time. So put this together. In our time thus far, we've recognized these three things. Many antichrists that work in our world. These antichrists are, are not our adversary per se, but rather people through whom our adversary works. Three, for the greatest part, there are two arenas. Church, the false church. Pastors, church leaders in our world today. People who claim to be God lovers, but who are antichrists because their word stands against the word of Jesus. And then the political realm, second realm in which we find antichrists at work. And lastly, we've, we've learned that these antichrists are effective. And they, they are because they belong to an adversary that knows how to hunt souls. And make no mistake about it, 
he is after yours. So let me tell you where we're going to go today. I want to wrap up our study of Antichrist by answering one last question. This is one I actually get asked quite a bit when engaging in this study. Here's the question. Pastor Luke, I understand as I look at John's epistle as well as the Revelation that there are many Antichrists, plural. But does the Bible talk about one Antichrist as being the Antichrist? Isn't there an Antichrist? It's really kind of an insightful question. So bottom line, I won't make you wait. The answer is yes. We've already, we've already looked at a scripture that points us to this. I don't know if you remember it, but John's epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Remember the words with me. John writes to the church. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. So we have it here, the singular and the plural. Many Antichrists have come. They're, they're here now. They're active in churches and the political realm. But there's also the singular. The Antichrist is coming. There's one yet to come who we are to look for. So what does the Bible talk to us about that? The answer is within Paul's letter to the church of Thessalonica, we're going to find that Paul identifies the fact that where the Antichrist is described with a title that is intended to make you and I really think about what we're looking for. Maybe you remember this title. I want to take you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And the title or the term that Paul uses for the Antichrist or the Antichrist is man of lawlessness. I want to, I want to look at Paul's words with you. But as we open it up, allow me to give you kind of a high-level thought that, that might help. When I think about Antichrist, I think to myself, Luke, pay attention to what you're seeing and happening in and through both the church and the politic. Without question, there are multiple Antichrists at work, and they bear the names of men. Because that's what they are. Antichrists are not monsters. They're not demons. They're people through whom fallen angels work. But don't forget that there will be a last Antichrist, singular. There'll be one who signals the fact that we've moved into, at minimum, the last period of time in Earth's history. So the question becomes, what do I look for? How, how will I know that this one, this man, because he's also a man, is the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist? So my thought is, well, look at Paul's scripture, because in it, he gives us two close clues that are very helpful, two clues that point us to what we should be looking for and paying attention to, two clues that are, to some degree, causing me right now to look at the times in which we currently live and wonder, are we there? Are we on the verge of moving into what the Revelation calls the half a time, that last period in Earth's history? So let, let's turn to Paul's words. I want to read verses uh, 1 to 4. Uh, there's a little bit of text here, but it's worth our looking at. So allow me to read this, and we'll come back through these verses and make a few observations helpful toward discerning what the Bible means when it refers to the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. Lord, we just pray that you would lead us through these words. This is 2 Thessalonians, 
and we're going to begin reading uh, verses 1 to 4. We read, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the term used here for Antichrist, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, claiming himself to be God. So let's walk through these verses together. I'm going to lift up several thoughts. So thought number one, as you hear these words, notice that in this scripture, Paul never utilizes the word Antichrist, but it's exactly who he's speaking about. In other words, the Antichrist spoken of in 1 John chapter 2, the one who's coming, is this one, the man of lawlessness that Paul is pointing us to. That's thought one. Thought two, notice there are two things Paul points to that must take place prior to the end, prior to Jesus' return. These two things tell us that we've entered the time where the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, are present. So what are the two things? They are A, the apostasy. The, the translation that we read used the term rebellion. And B, the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So well, let's take that apart. I'm going to begin with that first word. Paul's saying one of the certain signs that we're entering into the very last part of Earth's history is we will we will see an apostasy take place. The Greek word is apostasia. So what's that? I actually find this fascinating. Here, here the Greek word really helps us to understand it. That the term apostasia is a word comprised of two words that when put together form a word picture. The first part of the word is apo, which means from. The second part of the word is stasia from the root verb histeme, or literally one's standing. When you put them together, you end up with a raw translation. We, we would translate it this way. The apostasy is what happens when you get knocked off of, pushed away from your standing. Or, we might say it this way, apostasy is falling away from faith, falling away from truth, falling away from a once held ground of standing. Now, I, I would argue that when you look back through history, there are many people who believe that apostasy, the one referred to here by Paul, was taking place in their lifetime. In other words, they fully expected Jesus Christ to return. Um, there's been people who would say, this is it. Look, we're moving away from our foundations as a country or as a church. We must be entering into this apostasy that Paul is talking about. So we need to start paying attention. We need to start looking for the Antichrist. I'll just ask you this. When you look back at history, can you identify periods of history where people might have thought this to be true? It's, pro it's not, probably not that hard. Nazi Germany, 
right? People living through Nazi Germany felt like this. They said, this is it. Our once Christian nation, Germany had been, is moving away from its roots, from its standing. Oh, Hitler loved to quote the Bible, and in particular Jesus, but only his version of Jesus. He also effectively shut down the Christian church. So yes, people living in this time would have said, the apostasy is on us. But was it? Well, no. While Hitler turned against the church, there were many on the Western Front that retained and held tight to their Christian beliefs. The same was true for the period of the Enlightenment. Clearly, many moved away from their faith standing during the years of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment late 1700s, into the early 1800s. But, but God preserved his church. This was not the apostasy. Luther and many of our church body's forefathers, no doubt, believed that they were living in the apostasy. They were not. The 20th century, which saw the rise of communism, Stalin, Mao Zedong, others, all who hated Christianity, said, this is it. Christians are being persecuted globally. They still are today, but it was not. So, so the question is, is the apostasy happening now, today? Are we in it? While there's no absolute way for us to know with certainty, I do believe that at minimum, apostatic behavior is becoming normed in our time today. Today, more so than ever in Earth's history, there is a tremendous falling away from the Christian faith globally. That's certainly true in the West and in America, where with astonishing speed, time-tested beliefs are being replaced with radical ideologies and practices. When what is right is made to be wrong, and what is wrong is made to be right, I think we have a strong case for suggesting that we're living through the apostasy today. That said, what we can all know for certain is that there's a need that has developed for Christians to be vigilant in our watch for the man of lawlessness, or what we would say is the Antichrist. So what does that look like? Well, I believe this is the second thing Paul points us to. He tells us that we will know we are entering the last part of Earth's history because the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that he is? That he's being revealed today? By, by revealed, the Bible's not talking about some religious or political individual appearing on television with a subheader declaring him to be the Antichrist. That's not what we're talking about. I think it'll be much more subtle. What we're talking about is someone who places themselves, Paul tells us, above the word of God, above all that is called God, while proclaiming that what he is bringing or speaking is of God. Now, does this person, the Antichrist, occupy a spiritual or a political seat, or both? Remember, in Luther's day, and within the Lutheran confessions, the answer to that question was, well, yes. Remember, Luther identified the Antichrist with the Pope. Why? Because when the, the Pope speaks ex cathedra, Luther observed, he sets himself on a plane equal with God. He speaks as God. Yet, what he speaks is often not in accord with the scriptures. Well, here's the thought. Is it possible that the Antichrist might be a political figure who acts in a similar way to take on spiritual significance. 
I think about our own situation in America today where the president quotes Jesus Christ, Hitler did it too, in his appeal to support abortion. I believe it could be political or a spiritual figure or both that Paul's referring to. We, we cannot know with absolute certainty, but there, there are three things that we can know. Number one, the Bible says, the word reveals, that is, uncovers him. In other words, those living in faith can say, I'm listening to and I'm observing these words, these things, and they are not right. In fact, they stand against the clear word of God. The word reveals it. Number two, God either is or has been holding this person back until the season for his coming is present. Uh, I love these words um, again in 2 Thessalonians. Paul says to the Christians, verse 6, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. In other words, God, God doesn't release the Antichrist until it is time for the world to begin to close out its history in its broken form. Number three, once fully revealed, Jesus will abolish the very breath of the Antichrist. I love these words. Verse eight, Second Thessalonians. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That will take us to the end, our Lord's victory. I want to close with three questions. Question one. So what signs do you see that might point to the fact that we could be living in the apostasy even today? Are you seeing signs? Are there things telling you? wait a minute, uh, globally, what the world used to hold on to, stand tight and firm upon, it's moved away from. And how do you see that practically being played out? Question number two, how is God revealing antichrists to you? We know those are present. How's he revealing them? Um, I've, I've had people tell me over the course of the last number of months, well, here, here's a clear, again, indicator that this person is acting in a capacity of Antichrist. They're speaking words that they, they tell us belong to God, and absolutely they do not. They come against God's clear word. How, how is that being revealed to you? Question three, how, how do these words help us not fear? Not fear, but at the same time remain vigilant in our watch for the Antichrist. I, I believe that's what God is calling us to do, to stand firm in this time, not on fear, but in faith. Well, that's it for today. We'll be off the next two weeks. The 4th of July is upon us, and then I've got a week I'll be gone on vacation. Then we'll be back. And I want to move to the last part of Daniel chapter 11 and conclude with chapter 12. I want to thank you for listening. I continue to pray for you. Ask for your prayers. And uh, I do. I wish you a, a, a blessed week. Uh, may God be with you till we meet again. And until we do, have a God-sized week.